0: Welcome to Bibliophiles, a podcast for lit lovers. In today's episode, the Center for Lit team continues its quest to discover the great ideas in books of every description, ancient classics to fresh bestsellers, epic poems to bedtime stories. We're glad you came along. We hope you find this discussion as provocative and inspiring as the books themselves. Want to join the great conversation? Stay tuned, you've come to the right place. Welcome back, everyone. It's Bibliophiles. Once again, Adam Andrews with you, as always, joined by the Center for Lit crew, consisting of my wife, Missy. Hi. My son, Ian. Well, hey. And my daughter-in-law, Emily. Hello. And gathered together as we are today, our purpose is unique. This time, we're going to talk about poetry. We're going to offer an apology for poetry, or maybe just a discussion of poetry with an eye towards explaining, chewing on, discussing the question what is poetry good for? How is it different from other kinds and types of literature? What is the most compelling justification for reading it, for including it in your regular diet of literary and intellectual meat? And maybe even by the time we're done, how do you teach it to your students? So poetry in general is the subject, and I've probably painted the field a little broadly as I am want to do, but let me just start by tossing the question in, as, in that broad fashion out to you guys. What's the deal with poetry? Why should we consider it? What place does it have in bibliophiles?
1: Well, I was actually going to make, make it even broader, honestly. That, I was going to respond to your broad beginning with a broad response of my own. So oh, no. here's the thing. I think that poetry, I guess I'd argue that poetry in the broadest use of the term just denotes imaginative literature, Ooh. imaginative literature, mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, prose that is nonfiction.
0: So basically you would answer my question by saying, if you consider literature at all to be important, then you've already
2: yes. admitted that poetry is important.
1: Yes, absolutely. Okay,
2: I- Okay. I might need you to explain that to me because along with some of our listeners, I am 100% sure, and listener, you know who you are, (laughs) we have now raised our hand and said, except you can't do that. When you say, what is poetry worth? We all mean, you know, poetry. Right. So defend yourself.
1: Okay. So here's the thing. Poetry in the broadest sense of the term is imaginative literature. And you know, if we can go back to Aristotle's Poetics, which is really a meditation on drama, right? And plot in particular being the major thing he's most interested in. um, That's imaginative literature, right? It's a form. Yeah, it's story. It's it's talking about truth in a non-literal way. That's what I would say. Imaginative Ah. literature is engaged in speaking about true things Man's circumstances, um, you know, universals, the universals, his nature, um, his experience on this earth, that sort of thing. But to do so in a non-literal way, with using figurative language, right? And imagery, and, and imagery, and all that sort of fictional
0: thing. Fictional characters and plots and things.
1: Yes. So, if you're going to talk about imaginative literature, then poetry of the sort that you're talking about is a subset of the larger genre of imaginative literature. But um, really the whole thing begins with poetics, non-literal communication, right?
2: Okay, so I can see that you're broadening this. Here's my question. Doesn't that sort of negate our conversation or do you intend to try and justify for me the presence of imaginative literature?
1: Well, what dad said, what he, the way he lined this out in our notes, was how does poetry participate in literary art? In what way is it an art unto itself? So Mm. the overlap between the thing that you mean when you say poetry and this other kind of poetic literature, that is imaginative literature, comes in, first of all, their object, right? And second of all, their means. So the object of imaginative literature and imaginative art in general is to deal with universals in a beautiful way, right? Okay, sure. To to discuss the the stuff of man, and mm-hmm. the the um the unchangeable realities that are present regardless of the age of man that we're talking about, but that resonate because of the human condition and the human experience and things like that, regardless of when um, when the author wrote and the reader reads. Right. 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 Okay, so both poetry in particular and imaginative literature in general um, agree in this particular aim of the literary arts. Yes. And in addition, they overlap in terms of the way they go about this. There are lots of different forms of imaginative literature. Um, Poetry, like the rest of them, uses metaphor and Mm -hmm. simile and literary devices we call them poetic devices for a reason and in poetry it's the most condensed form of all of these sorts of things
0: so hang on a second i want to interject here it sounds like what you're doing missy is describing all of the ways goals and means alike that poetry is as ian conceives it is just the same as as fiction what you're saying is the goals are the same and not only that a lot of the techniques are the same. So what's the difference?
1: Well, obviously the density of the of the literary matter is the difference. When you're looking at a poem, you're looking at compressed thought in language. A poem has to be unpacked, right? So that the reader can see what's inside there. Every word, every rhyme, every metrical element, every illusion and association, all of it is measured. All of it is intentionally chosen. Um, And we have to pay attention to these details in order to unpack the poem and understand what the author might have been trying to say.
0: So the the shorter and more dense. Because
1: sometimes it's less what he's trying to say and more what he's trying to intuit. But really, the art of reading poetry, that is an art in and of itself. Mm. Poetry is an art, and learning how to read it is also an art form. Mm. It's it's not creative in the same sense, but it requires skill and nuance and attention to detail. In the same way, the creation of the poem actually uh, involved all of those same elements.
2: Hmm, interesting. Okay, so poems are shorter and denser, harder. Sometimes to read. they're
1: shorter. It and depends on. A, I mean, there are epic poems; those
2: aren't shorter. Right. Right. The more difficult to read, though, because we have to unpack them, right?
1: Sometimes they're more difficult. Yeah, it depends on which so poem you're discussing.
2: So is there something about the act of reading poetry itself that makes it a uh, a separate, well, I guess, genre is what you've sort of left me with as a, as a species to talk about it, right? A separate genre of imaginative literature that has its own sort of um, utility apart from, let's say, a novel or... A short story or something like that.
0: I want to jump in on that. In my mind, and this is a relatively speaking, an uneducated observation and opinion, but in my mind, the use of, of narrative language is not nearly as common in poetry. And although I'm sure there, there are narrative poems that, that partakes somewhat of narrative, the main div- dividing line between, say, a novel and a poem is that a novel is written in narrative language or prose. Where where we're talking with about declarative sentences, sentence structure, uh, paragraph structure. There's there's plot being narrated. There's the interaction of characters, and those things are being declared rather than evoked. Maybe.
1: Well, then we've got um, Longfellow's Midnight Ride of Paul Revere, right? So we can't say we can't draw a simple line and say um, if it tells a story, then it's narrative as opposed to poetic, because there sure. are poetic narrations.
2: Yes. Of course, there are. I, I guess what I'm what I was trying to ask is, why would you read poetry? Well, the fact of it being short and dense and difficult to read doesn't necessarily make it its own thing with its own set of of reasons to recommend itself.
1: I would say it's because it's the most beautiful. It's the highest form of literary art. And hmm. I wouldn't be alone in that.
0: Now, but, there is a claim.
1: This, this is what this was what Coleridge said. He said, I wish our clever young poets would remember my homely definitions of prose and poetry. That is, prose, words in their best order. Poetry, the best words in the best order.
2: Hmm. Oof, oh. Oh.
1: And I think that that really does kind of get at what we're talking about here, right? When we're writing in prose, we're trying to articulate clearly and concisely by putting the words in the best order to arrive at their destination, right? But the poet is not just interested in arriving at a destination, he cares about how we get there, right? He cares about the image, and he's going to try to choose the most apt image and state it in the most apt language so as to leave the, the reader with, um, with a concrete contact, for the abstract thought that he's trying to communicate to them. The, act, the actual word abstract um, comes from the Latin ab, which means from and uh, trahere, which means to draw or to pull. So something that's abstract has been drawn or pulled away from the concrete reality that it was originally associated with. Mm. And the poet has as it, as his job to reconnect those things in some way, in a new way that gives the reader a new experience with the idea itself, to take the mm. abstract feeling or thought and connect it with something concrete in the natural world um, that would serve the reader with a new set of eyes, really.
0: I see what you're saying. So in, in, insofar as um, a novel does this, takes an abstract idea that has been pulled from its original context and mm-hmm. tries to connect it back to some sort of physical reality, some other physical reality. Insofar In case, as a plot. Right. Insof- exactly. A plot or a fictional character or a fictional event. Insofar as a novel does that, it's poetic because that is the essence of poetry, to reconnect an abstract thought with a concrete image of some kind. Yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. yes. Oh, I like that. Listen,
1: this is what Ezra Pound said about this he's speaking about um, what is truly poetry. And he says this, use no superfluous word, no adjective which does not reveal something. Don't use such an expression as, quote, dim land of peace, end quote. It dulls the image. It mixes an abstraction with the concrete. It comes from the writers not realizing that the natural object is always the adequate symbol. Go in fear of abstractions.
2: Wow. Mm-hmm.
1: That's from it his It strikes essay. me that
2: this is, the, and I love that definition of poetry. I think that's spectacularly beautiful. But it seems like that maybe applies to art uh, at yes. large, art more generally. Yes. As opposed to philosophy. Art mm-hmm. art has the role of taking abstraction and making it concrete. Yes. And, Maybe that art claims to do that or claims a position in the human experience that is utterly unique because it says this is how you move someone, not with philosophy or oratory, but instead with concrete images of what is real.
1: Yeah, and that's what a poem is. It's a concrete image that's given verbally of what is real. It's, mm. it's like verbal art. Um, Jay Perini talks about poetry as being verbal objects, a poem is a verbal object, and I love that definition. I think it's um, oh, it's poem all by itself, right? You can hold it, it you can understand it. A poem is a verbal object. Put it in your pocket, save it for later. You know,
0: that seems very very. I mean, obviously, obviously, taking poetry seriously is taking literature seriously. But there are, I'm sure, there are listeners to bibliophiles. That are thinking, and maybe maybe there are the children of listeners to bibliophiles thinking, wait a minute, I thought poetry was uh, primarily <laughs> notable for the fact that it rhymes. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> or that it's, you can do this, you know, not bob your head in, 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 in <laughs> sequence to the rhythm of it when you read it out loud. Why is that definition inadequate? Or maybe a better question is, is that a legitimate part of a good definition of poetry?
1: Well, poetry most poetry does bow to certain conventions. And I'm again quoting Jay Perini, who's kind of one of my one of my mentors in my understanding and my study of poetry. He wrote a wonderful textbook called An Invitation to Poetry. And I would highly recommend it for any of you that want to investigate poetry more deeply. Um, but I really do like his ideas. He says that the the vast majority of poetry does bow to certain conventions. Okay, for, so for example, meter, form, rhyme schemes, right? But not all of it. There is such a thing as a free verse poem, and it doesn't necessarily rhyme, and it, um, it sets its own form. It doesn't have a prescribed form. So, mm. you know, you can make some general um, statements about poetry that would include the possibility of rhyme and meter and things like that. But not all poems must have those things in order to be a poem. I think what really lies at the heart of good poetry is imagery, metaphor, symbolism, um, allusions, uh, associations. Poems work on these kinds of verbal associations. And sometimes the association is less literal and more, sound i mean a poem involves the ear the eye and the the head isn't frost it... robert frost said it involves the ear the eye and the mind or the heart he says
0: isn't it isn't it true what you're saying because of what you said before that the that the thing that makes poetry poetry is the process of associating a previously abstracted idea mm-hmm with something concrete. So association is really kind of at the heart of things, right? Yes. So it makes perfect sense that associative verbal techniques, imagery, metaphor, onomatopoeia, that kind of yes, thing yes. would be central to the poetic process.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you mentioned onomatopoeia because that enjoins the ear, right? Sensory sensory language is, oh, it's at the heart of this kind of uh, communication. Poetry is is spoken. It's it's experienced with the senses. And you see, I could say the same thing about a good piece of rhetoric. Good rhetoric engages the senses. Good rhetoric appeals to metaphor. There are great metaphors in the best oratories, but they are not purely poetic. You see, you might get one metaphor over the course of a good uh, speech, but in a poem, you, you may get And meditation on an extended metaphor where every element of that metaphor is is pulled through the poem and explored. Or you may get a multitude of metaphors that all revolve around the same concept. So the poet is offering you a multitude of ways to explore the idea with him. Mm. you see? Mm -hmm. So it's much more compact, much more compressed. It's denser. And therefore, it requires more of the reader but I would say it's equally as rewarding.
0: So I have a, re- a question for our resident Shakespeare expert, Emily, does do the the poems of Shakespeare, not, not the poems, the plays of Shakespeare are often spoken of as poetry. Um, is this, given our discussion so far, is that a fair characterization of Shakespeare?
3: Well, the more I'm listening to mom describe it, the more I'm feeling the lines between narrative and poetry blend together mm-hmm. and while it's certainly true that in his, i mean his sonnets for certain uh fit the poetic conventions and our meditations on images and are much more verbal objects right but in his plays they they fit the conventions of iambic pentameter but the feel of it is much more narrative
1: mm-hmm.
3: and it has a lot more of the literary what's the right term to use it has the elements of story yes, instead of just the elements of poetry. And so I'm beginning to think that maybe even the very best novels are pieces of poetry because I was thinking, well, maybe the thing about them is that they don't fit a certain form except for the novel is itself a form. Yeah, you're right. So I don't know. I'm just trying to process all of this.
2: Which is which? what makes me think I agree with that. Um, I was thinking that about the novel also because... Uh, what seems to emerge to me is that poetry, uh, what sets poetry apart from other art forms is its um, submission to form, one kind or another, but we can't say these forms and not these other ones, right? Its submission to form, a willingness to allow formal boundaries to, to be what allows you to make your point, I suppose that... Oh, yeah, well, oh, absolutely.
0: The thing
3: I would separate out is story, because not all poems tell a story.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> not all stories are poetic either.
3: Right. So I mean, just in my own thinking, I, I think that there can be a poetic novel that's kind of maybe where you can draw the line. Poetry isn't by necessity a story, it's although not... there certainly are poems that tell stories that you can put on a plot chart
1: <laughs> Narratives.
0: What yeah, what about the what about thinking about that the other that relationship the other way around that the narrative arc, exposition, rising action, climax, denouement, conclusion is one of a variety of poetic forms. Hmm. Uh, there, there's the sonnet on one hand, 14 lines, a particular rhyme scheme. There's a question and then an answer. It happens either line eight or line 10, whatever it is, blah, 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 blah. There's this, the form is defined by a certain shape and structure. Maybe the novel is just another poetic form.
1: Well, I, I think you could go too far in that because we we do want to distinguish between the novel and the poem. But you're right when you say that they're both poetic, they're both imaginative, so they're both going to engage figurative language and yeah, but, poetic devices.
0: Yeah, but I was going to say even farther. they're also poetic in that they bow to a form. Maybe, maybe that's a, a part right, of a definition of poetry. I think that's what Ian was, was getting at.
1: But you wouldn't necessarily list the novel. In fact, I, I certainly wouldn't list the novel as a subset of um, poetic forms.
2: Okay, but okay, but why not though? Because what you wanted to do a second ago is That's right. broaden it all back up and say these are all subsets of poet of yes. poetics broadly. So I'm okay with following you there and did. <laughs> <laughs> and then we run the, the risk though, don't we, of saying that okay, let's take this form the novel. Those novels which also participate in poetics poetically yes. are better than novels that don't. Yes. And so the presence of being like poetry is what makes prose good. Yeah, is that what you want to say? Kind of. I think it is. I mean, I like... think
1: it is kind of what I want to say. I would not say. I mean, a novel is, does certainly not a poem make, but to the extent that a novel engages in the use of poetic language and poetic ideas, the novel
2: is improved.
0: Okay, I have never I like
2: thought I need that to before. To the defense of the novel because yeah. a a uh, a poetic hand. Right, someone who's capable of making their observations in metaphor and using symbolism and imagery does not a good novelist make either. You're
1: right, but I it actually, you it depends on what you mean by that because if what you I mean think is you somebody, know what I mean by that. no, I don't. I need you to clarify because if what you mean is somebody who uses a lot of adjectives and metaphors, never mind if they're any good. I would refer you back to Coleridge's original quote. <laughs> about the difference between prose and poetry and then Ezra Pound af- after him about the use of superfluous adjectives.
2: Uh, no, but see I will I will clarify for you then because what he said is a great way to talk about the difference between prose and poetry. Great way to talk about that. However, what he ignores is the fact that and you said this yourself a second ago, reading poetry is way more difficult than reading prose, which doesn't make it uh, which doesn't make the prose worse. In other words, there's an aspect of novel writing that involves clarity and directness in the way you're communicating to your reader. Sometimes what you need is to slap them in the face in a way they absolutely cannot misunderstand with an element of your story. And that wouldn't be poetry by Coleridge's definition.
3: Although I will say one thing that the novel doesn't have that most poetry does have is a visual element, although not that it's not possible. I'm certain that that could be incorporated into the novel, and I'm sure it has been. But a lot of poetry- Wait, a visual element of like lines and the the visual. Um, oh, like
2: enjambment, like and that kind word of thing.
3: placement mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. right, and mm-hmm. word placement being important. And so, mm-hmm. when you're looking at a poem, like it's also like looking at a painting on a wall. Mm-hmm. The visual presentation is also important in its interpretation.
1: Yeah, she's exactly right about that. Also, I would respond to you, Ian, by saying that the best poem will do the very same thing, uh, aims toward the same goal that you're describing fiction, uh, as having that clarity. The, the goal of guy- the poet is not a obfuscation. You know, uh, did you ever read Marianne Moore's, um, her poem about poetry?
0: About the, the gnomes in a garden or something? It, it begins
1: with, I too dislike it. And yeah. then she goes on to describe poetry of the kind you're referencing, the obscure poetry that you basically need a guide in order to read aloud on your own. Basically what she comes up with is if it doesn't mean something, then it's not actually useful hmm.
2: right I agree if it doesn't mean something it's not useful on the other hand there are poets who take as their watchword tell all the truth but tell it slant hmm.
1: yeah, Emily Dickinson right? yeah absolutely but what does she mean by that word slant
2: What she means is tell it in an unexpected way that makes it difficult to grasp so that you have to try to grasp it and so that you have to pause over the content in order to try and grasp it.
1: I don't think she she means, I don't, I don't agree with you. I don't think she means tell it in such a way that no one can understand you.
2: That is not what I said, is it?
1: What you started with is tell the truth in a way that's unexpected. That I agree with. I think you're exactly right that that's what a poet's trying to do. He's trying to tell the truth in an unexpected way so that your eyes say, oh, and your heart receives it. Uh, you experience with the poet whatever the idea is in a way that's very unanticipated.
2: Okay, but wh- back to the original claim that I made, which was in defense of the novel: a good poet is not always a good novelist. Okay, yes. and I'm I, not I and, with that yet.
0: And also, also I think that that can be profitably said the other way around: a good or even great novelist. Is not necessarily a good poet, yes. and isn't right. and isn't writing poetry, mm-hmm. even in the best novel. I can't get Robert Louis Stevenson out of my head, um, Treasure Island, one of the great novels. Yeah, I mean it's written for a younger audience, but you cannot deny Treasure Island. It is a Nor can masterpiece. You put it down once you've picked it up, by any definition, it's a masterpiece. Not yeah.
2: particularly poetic, I would say. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, then and, what and, are we to do with Coleridge, in that in that context? the best words in, or, or words in the best order, the best words in the best order. I, it breaks down, I think, when we start talking about the difference between novelists and well, poets. Well,
0: but, but I, it does. And I think maybe that Stevenson's a good example because what he's after is something in the way of directness and clarity and unambiguous language that is, that is the highest form of art in his particular genre that would not be, that would make for a poor poem, given what we've said about poetry so far. And I think we'd all agree that the use of non-literal, the use of, of associative images, the use of words in unexpected ways, that's, that's kind of the, the, the bread and meat of poetry.
1: I would say, though, in defense of poetry, that um, the ambiguous use of language that you're talking about is not for the sake of obfuscation but for the sake of loading the language and making associations where there are ambiguities, it's usually intentional so that more than one thing can be referenced simultaneously, more than one thing can be brought together.
2: Yeah.
0: I'll
2: go with that for sure. Which
1: doesn't necessarily obfuscate. Sometimes it makes things even more clear.
2: Sure. That I didn't necessarily intend to say that all great poets are, are, are native obfuscators. (laughs) What I meant to say is that, um, the presence of a bunch of great poetry in a novel doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a better novel than the novel next door that doesn't use a bunch of poetry.
1: No, certainly not. That's why I think it's important to separate them as art forms. But what I would say is that poetry as an art form is
2: like—it's
1: um, like what's left when you've boiled something all away, and all that's left in the be- in the end is the the purest form of the thing. <laughs>
2: But then are, there's just no way around the fact that what you're saying is poems are diamonds and novels are gold chunks yeah. of earth that maybe has a diamond in there someplace.
3: No, it's just that there are two things going on. There's narrative and then there's poetry. And because both of them employ words as the medium, they necessarily blend together. And I don't think that there's ever a way to separate them entirely. You're right.
0: You're right. And I was just thinking about the, the idea of, of not being able to separate them, thinking about my example of Treasure Island. On the one hand, Long John Silver is a great fictional character who is, who is described in with, with um, uh, the, what's the word? declarative sentence after declarative sentence after declarative sentence. And yet at the same time, he symbolizes all kinds of stuff. Oh, and yeah. the associations that we draw by understanding his character are the same kinds of associations we draw when hamlet says what is this quintessence of dust mm-hmm. or when john milton says batter my heart three person god i mean th- it, we're doing association in in all those cases so i think emily's right there is a there is a what'd you say emily a few minutes ago there's this blurring of the lines between the two i think that's probably true
3: i guess i would say in a novel whatever's left when you take out all of the elements of story of value is the poetry hmm. and that poetry thereby doesn't necessarily have any of the elements of story, although it certainly can. But I think those are the two piles of things that we're working with. There's the narrative qualities and then there's the poetic qualities. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they're intertwined and in the best, eh, the best, Novelists sometimes
0: intertwine them. The best poets don't necessarily have to because it's its own thing. But maybe a narrative poem is narrative by accident and poetical by essence. Yeah, it, it
3: leans on the poetry instead of the narrative, uh-huh. whereas a novelist leans on the narrative instead of the poetry.
0: That is interesting.
1: But I do think that you're, you're identifying the main way that they overlap, and it's the use of poetic language and poetic devices and all Good writing engages those ideas.
0: Yeah, word. So let me just change the subject just slightly. Then, um, what benefit besides besides pleasure in the in the neat sounds of the words do we derive from reading poetry? And should should all thinking adults try it out if they haven't? It's an apology for poetry, after all.
1: Well, How- I I think it's it's the same kind of pleasure that you derive from listening to a symphony or a fine piece of music Mm. or um, going to an art museum and seeing beautiful, um, elegant paintings, statues, things like that. Um, It engages the mind with the great ideas so that you're not adrift, isolated in your own time and place, but you're connected with a lot of other people, with a lot of other thinkers who thought about the same kinds of things that you thought about and um, experienced the same kind of reality that you experience, it locates, it objectifies truth in a real way. Um, mm. Yeah, I think it objectifies it. It pulls you; it gives you a, um, an avenue outside of the individual self mm-hmm. that contains you mm-hmm. so that you can connect with the other. Mm. And, um, it resonates. I mean, one of the things I think that makes good poetry good is that there's that element of recognition where the reader is forced to concede that, um, yeah, yeah, it's like that.
0: Yeah. You know? I was just thinking, oh, that. I
1: felt that. Oh, I've seen that. It's I-
0: because it's associative. Yes. And and it's it that it's it has that in common with something you said a minute ago, which is music and the visual arts, which whatever else they are, they're non-literal. Mm-hmm. They they work by association. It's the 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 set of non-literal reactions that you have to a piece of music, mm-hmm. you associate it with whatever else it is in your own experience, and you say, Ah, it's like that. And there is a kind of there's a kind of human pleasure in that association. That poetry gives too, yes, and in in some different way than a um, than a novel does. But it's interesting, I think. Poetry is is kind of um, uh, contradictory is the wrong word, but we come at that that pleasure uh, kind of the long way round because poetry works in words, and so it uses literal words in non literal ways. Yes. And so it's a two-step process to to reach that associative pleasure, whereas in music it's a, it's more of a one-step process, perhaps. It's
1: maybe more direct. Yeah. Uh, Ezra Pound said in his in in one of his pieces, um, he's speaking about the poet Hardy, and he says, "No man can read Hardy's poems collected, but that his own life, forgotten moments of it, will come back to him in a flash here and an hour there." Have you a better test of poetry? Wow. This ability of the poet to evoke your own experiences. So that there's there's sort of like a I don't know, there's a a sympathetic element to poetry and I think to all good art. Yeah.
3: Well, narrative literature seems to do that through the characters mm-hmm. by making it an actual person that you mm-hmm. relate to and travel through mm-hmm. life with. Whereas poetry relies on images mm-hmm. to yep. to create that feeling. Yeah,
0: I think that's true. Do you, uh, Center for Lit Denizens, have a poet or a work of poetry that you would recommend to the initiate who realizes, based on the fact that um, Center for Lit is a guide to all things literary, and that if we suggest something, you should go read it (laughs) forthwith? (laughs) Given that assumption, do you have something to guide Center for Listeners too, in the realm of poetry. A favorite poet, maybe. I'll go around the room, but we'll start with whoever wants to speak first.
1: Well, I would start with um, Milne. Go mm-hmm. read um, King John's Breakfast or, um, oh, John, let see. You James, mean A. James, A. Milne. Yeah, James, James Morrison, Morrison, be George Dupree, took great care of his mother, though he was only three. James, James said to his mother, mother, he said, said he, you must never go down to the end of the town without consulting me.
0: It's glorious. So <laughs> it's right? glorious. Go,
1: do read, Milne. Um, John had great big waterproof boots on. John had a great big waterproof hat. John had a great big waterproof Macintosh, and that said, John is that. I mean,
2: you you need you'll that love it.
1: You need it in enough. your life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
0: A. a Milne Oh this is beautiful. I love the level at which this is going on. Start there. And uh, I think great. if
1: you if you get your feet wet so to speak with John and Milne, um, you might find that you want to continue exploring poetry and um go in a little deeper.
0: Okay, now, before you recommend all of your favorite poets, I want <laughs> one from everybody in the group. <clears throat> so, we can come back around to you again, Missy, if you want to. But somebody else. Who is your who who would you recommend to the to the initiate. Emily?
3: Um, I really like Seamus Haney. And uh, I would start with the poem Digging.
0: Seamus Haney.
3: It's a, I feel like it's easy entry to, that
0: book to adult
3: poetry. That poem is un... Not that Milne isn't
0: adult poetry. Un- it un- absolutely un- is. But Is Seamus Haney still living?
3: No, he just
0: recently died. So recently died. So he's a late 20th, early 21st century poet. Mm-hmm. Didn't Seamus Heaney do a, a translation of Beowulf? Is is he the Beowulf translator?
1: Yeah, he did. Okay. He did my, fa- my favorite translation. Of Beowulf? Of Beowulf. I think he was the one that did my favorite.
0: Okay. We got A.A. A. Milne and Seamus Heaney. Ian, what about you? Um, there, there are three names that jump
2: immediately to mind that aren't classic. Just one. Uh, you only get one. Almost. Mom only got one. You only get one.
1: We can go around again.
2: Okay. Um, I think in that case... I think everybody should read uh, Siegfried Sassoon,
1: mm.
2: who is a war poet, and he is really something else.
0: Very good. Um, Your guys, you guys have left the field wide open for me. That was nice of you. Uh, I can go ahead and suggest something ancient and traditional, and um, I, I, guess that's uh, that's what I'll do. And and the reason is that I don't really know very much about um, more modern poetry, so I'm going to be guided. By your suggestions and go read some Sassoon and some Seamus Haney as well. But everyone should read the holy sonnets of John Milton.
1: You mean before John Donne? I
0: mean, John Donne before they die. Word agreed. Yeah. Um, because the sonnet is a great form mm-hmm. and they are some of the greatest sonnets. Also, they're really written. accessible.
1: If you, if you understand the form, you've got like a key to help you unlock the meaning of the piece.
0: That's right. So John Dunn's Holy Sonnets, D-O-N-N-E, 17th century poet. By the way, John Milton has a few Holy Sonnets too that are no slouch, but only one, only one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, mom, you get only one for your second round. All right, second round, go.
1: Okay, only one, only one. Um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. Gerard? A Jesuit priest poet. um, Surpassingly beautiful sonnets. And other types as well. He didn't just confine himself to the sonnet form, but raw and real and um, a master of association metaphor, invented a new form of um, rhythm, sprung rhythm, was really interested in, um, he he called it inscape, figuring out the thing that made a thing a thing, um, the nature of things themselves and their unique identity in the created order, and he would say the created order because of his um, deep pious Christianity.
0: And he was a late nineteenth-century English poet,
1: mm. late Victorian, eighteen
0: eighties, eighteen nineties, I think. Okay, good. Gerard Manning Hopkins, Ian. Round two. I don't know, it's Emily's turn, actually. Oh, that's yeah. right, Emily, your turn.
1: Mm.
3: Well, one of the first poems that helped me start understanding poetry better was the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock with uh, Elliot, T.S. Eliot, just because it helped me understand the form and just the allusions that he used. It was it helped me see the possibilities for what you could do in a poem.
0: T.S. Eliot, first half of the 20th century the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. Awesome. That's modernism,
2: right?
3: It is, and it does lean more towards being obtuse. But that kind of was his point. And as a student, having to research actually did help me understand.
2: Okay, Ian, round two, go. Round two, B.H. Fairchild. You're just trying to say names I've never heard of. You're just trying to impress me. (laughs) These are the. I don't read a ton of poetry. Um, I'm ashamed to admit in front of my mother, who did her very best to instill a deep love of poetry in me. But um, and I've, re- I've read all the guys you're supposed to read, but I don't spend a lot of time sitting around reading poetry, except for the three guys that I have in mind. Sassoon is one of them, and B. H. Fairchild, who is still living now, actually, um, and whom I've had the pleasure of meeting, and is a very nice man. Um, but you go start with a poem called "The Gray Man." He has a, his, a compilation, it's actually sitting on my desk right now, a compilation of his work called Usher, in which the gray man features, and it is all beautiful. Mm.
1: Okay.
2: The man's a genius.
1: I'm loving this. I'm
0: like taking notes. Yeah. Um, again, I'm going to just go ancient and go traditional. Shakespeare. Shakespeare's sonnets. Um. Shakespeare's sonnets. Emily, you can back That's me up on this. That's a whole
3: different episode <laughs> of Bibliophiles. Yeah.
0: Um, I think Shakespeare's sonnets actually should be a separate episode of Bibliophiles. Oh, we should do it. But-
3: wildly shocked. I have recently been wildly shocked by Shakespeare's Oh, sonnets. my gosh.
0: Shakespeare's <laughs> sonnets are a trip they are They're such little, a trip are they they are bluer than blue i mean you have to be ready it, it, if you give if you learn to read poetry carefully and you and you read it seriously and you treat it like the art form it is and using the ideas that we've been talking about today then shakespeare's songs will scandalize you in four different ways to sunday
3: they have been wildly misused
0: i'll just say that. Uh, yeah. yeah
1: grossly misquoted
0: but um there's some there are some well, is evocative the right word? I don't ah, think it might provocative, be provocative, yeah. There you go. Now it's controversial. I think we can put the wraps <laughs> on this episode of Bibliophiles pretty nicely.
2: We can, except we should do a lightning round where you don't get to explain why. You just drop a name and then we're done.
0: We'll do okay. one more lightning round and then we're done. I have another one. Emily and I have to think fast, <laughs> but mom and Ian are ready. Okay, ready? And mom. Christian Wyman. And Good Emily. Choice.
1: Robert Frost. Oh,
3: ah, I love Robert, Robert Frost. Frost. Oh, yeah.
0: I love Robert Frost, too. How can you go wrong? That's beautiful. David Middleton. Oh, who is he? This, oh, yeah, I, this is Lightning Round. Yeah, this is Lightning Round. I don't get me. to explain. David Middleton. We'll talk. Yeah, we'll talk. You guys made it so easy for me. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And I'll tell you <laughs> why. Because Henry Wadsworth Longfellow has a terrible reputation in the 20th century for promoting sing-song versification. But people who say that don't understand. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate you holding forth on your ideas about poetry. This is very informative for me, a non-poet and, frankly, non-native poetry reader. And I hope that there were some listeners that fall into that category to this episode of Bibliophiles. We are grateful for your attention, as always. And if you'd like to listen to more episodes of Bibliophiles, please visit us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever else you get your podcast episodes. Also come by the website at centerforlit.com to see what else we're doing in the areas of reading and such like. Appreciate your attention. Thanks for coming by. Until we meet again, my friends, happy happy reading.
1: Happy reading. Happy reading.
0: Bibliophiles is a production of the Center for Lit podcast network. Find new episodes each month on the web at centerforlit.com, where you'll discover dozens of resources to equip and inspire you to participate in the great conversation, including the Pelican Society, a membership program for folks who love the Center for Lit approach to all things literary. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Until next time, happy reading, everyone.